You are listening to the Gay Florida Man podcast. This podcast is hosted by retired corrections officer, Mark DeWolf, who will discuss various topics prevalent to corrections, gay culture, arts and entertainment, as well as current events. Listeners need to be advised that this podcast will discuss situations involving extreme violence, substance abuse, sexual assault, and murder. Details of actual events have been modified so as to protect the privacy of involved parties. Welcome back to the Gay Florida Man podcast. This is episode 45. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. What is the definition of a hero for you? According to my dictionary, a hero is a person who is admired or idealized for courage, outstanding achievements, or noble qualities. This past November, I watched a documentary called Life in the Doghouse. It was an absolutely fantastic documentary. It told the story of two men who have dedicated their homes their finances, and their lives to saving the dogs discarded, forgotten, or abandoned by our society. I was intrigued and learned that the book Forever Home was available to answer so many of the questions unanswered by the documentary. Coming on the podcast today is an amazing person who clearly represents what a true hero is. Danny Robertshaw from Danny and Ron's Rescue. I have to give a big shout out to Kim from Danny and Ron's Rescue who facilitated this interview. Kim, I cannot thank you enough. Hello, Danny. How are you? I'm well, thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Are you down here in Florida right now? Yes, we are until uh, about the first or second week of April. Okay, fantastic. Well, I just, I read your book. Oh, it's fantastic. (laughs) You know, a lot of the questions that the documentary didn't answer, I'm so glad you guys put the book out. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's fantastic. So I've got a bunch of pages of notes. So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions if that's okay. Well, I'm sure it must be. The first question I wanted to find out is what are you guys up to as far as how many dogs you've saved? I think at the, the end of the book, it said 13 or 14,000. We're pushing very, right now very close to 14,000. Awesome. Now, I saw there was two Dobermans. One, of course, was Ron's dog, Tara, that wanted to find out the story with Tara. Tara was a l- right before me. <laughs> right, so, right. And Did- with Ron. And so... I only met her a time or two when I was at, at their house at the time, but I know she was a lovely dog and you know very sweet, and I know that he was in love with her, but uh, I didn't really know her myself very well. Okay. And then the other uh, the other one in the uh, documentary, you actually saw uh, uh, one of the, the dogs that was up for adoption was Doc. Uh, yeah, Doc was a love. See, you could tell I love Dobermans. Yeah, and, I do too. Well, you love every animal, it's which is awesome in the, in the book and then of course the movie. Almost all of them. <laughs> well, when you go back and you're talking about the turtles when you were a kid negotiating with these kids. I, yeah, I was pretty brave then. <laughs> that's that's fantastic though. Both you guys have such a passion and love not just for dogs but for all animals. 
Yeah, I'm a little weak that way. <laughs> no, that's 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 great. You've got a, a huge heart. It was really, really nice to see that in the documentary. So is it right if we talk about the documentary to start with, Danny? Sure. sure. So 2018, Ron Davis, the director, did you have any idea that it was going to be as big a success as it ended up being? Absolutely not. Um, we. <laughs> it was so funny because Ron came because he wanted a dog uh, to be a friend of his dog. And he'd never thought at all about a chihuahua or whatever. And uh, somehow or another during the visit here, we chatted and talked and he met little man or little guy. I think it is little guy. He just bonded with him right off the bat. And, and later he said, I never thought I'd be leaving here with a chihuahua. Believe me. He said, <laughs> he said I don't know what it is, but he, he said, you guys are going to be my next documentary. And so when he left, Ron and I looked at each other and started laughing. He said, right. Yeah. What do you want to do? See us feed 60 dogs every morning. And at the time, that was probably a good number to use. But uh, now it's a lot more. But we didn't find ourselves interesting in any sort of way. And we thought, you know, I don't, there's nothing to make a documentary about here. And he hounded us for about a year and a half and invited us to dinner and meet his other half. And just, we, we became friends and stuff. And so finally, he twisted our arms enough and we said, well, if you want to. But then we were really almost in depression thinking this is just going to be horrible. Really? So, well, we just couldn't figure out what it was that was of interest. Not really until we saw the whole documentary. You know, I watch a lot of documentaries, and I got to tell you, as soon as I watched this documentary, I was on the email to you guys, to Kim, because I said, I, I want to talk to these guys. What a great story. Well, thank you. We didn't even know what the story was. <laughs> it's it's so crazy that the two of you had no idea that you were so awesome in the story that you guys, starting with Katrina and then saving those dogs, and then it exploded into this just wonderful, wonderful thing. And then the story is finally told. You know, I guess you're right. <laughs> it, no, it's fantastic. It was a fascinating time because Ron is sort of ruthless um, <laughs> in the best of ways. Okay. Uh, but he interviewed, you know, interviewed me by myself and then Ron by himself. And then times we were together and had no idea what one had said about the other. Or Wow. And we, we never were allowed to hear any of it and we didn't really hear the story of what the story was going to be and we knew then it went to editing and so forth and and uh the day before we actually saw the film he rented the theater and just said you can invite some of your closest friends if you'd like to come see it with you because this is your first time and it can often be overwhelming to see yourselves on the big screen like that which we'd never seen ourselves on a screen period sure so uh we watched it and we're sort of amazed at how emotional we we became you know, during different parts of it and seeing that all put together. And uh, we kind of looked at each other later and said, well, maybe we're a little interesting. So. <laughs> no, I, I was fascinated by you guys. But like I said, there's so many things that, of course, movies can never cover the whole story. And I'm so glad that you guys decided to do the book because we learn a lot more about you guys and your relationships and your backgrounds, you with your relationship with your father, which seems like that was a very serious moment um, in your life. It was, uh, it was really cool though, that you had that last night that you guys bonded really well. It was probably the best moment in my life. So. That's so awesome. It definitely touched me, Danny, because you know, the relationship I have with my father, I was definitely able to relate. In fact, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps now 
just telling you that I'm, I'm glad that you had the uh the courage to open up and share that moment with uh with everybody well thank you I, it made me i was very afraid of being truthful to tell you the truth because i didn't really want anyone to be hurt by it mm -hmm. and i didn't want you know people that i knew to think i went through life scared of him or was afraid of him it wasn't that it was i did i didn't feel worthy of him right i can relate i can totally relate a lot of people can a lot more than i thought I'm sure just that aspect of your life, it touches a lot of people. And I know a lot of people that are gay can relate to that. And I know a lot of my friends, uh, There's there's been challenges with, with parents and particularly the father figure for a lot of uh, gay males. It, it definitely hit home with me. Uh, well, I'm glad it did then. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, thank you very much for that. In the movie, six minutes in, um, Ron talks about the very sad statistic of 4 million dogs. And I know it's a very important statistic. And it's the whole reason that you guys are so driven to try to save so many lives. And if you break that down, and if my math is correct, 10,958 per day, 456 per hour, seven per minute that we lose dogs to euthanasia. And um, when I broke it down, because when you say 4 million the United States is a big place. It's understandable. But when you start, you break it down to seven per minute. That's disgusting. It's, and, it's you know, there's so many different aspects of this documentary. You know, it starts out with you guys with your daily routine, waking up at 6, 630 in the morning and everything that you have to do, the cleaning, the kennels, the dogs, the going out, the, the medications. It evolves and it starts to go into the details of how you guys go out and you do your rescue and you try to look for these animals that are the least likely to be adopted. And for people that watch the film, that's so fantastic that you're looking for the ones that have the least chance of survival. Well, that, I think they're so often the ones that deserve it the most, as we've said. And I sort of borrow the phrase all the time from uh, the musical Miss Saigon. And uh, where they talk about the child whose only crime was being born. We feel that way about the dogs. It's, it wasn't their idea to be born and then mistreated. And so that, to us, that gives them a real right to have some chances in life. When you look back at the whole process of making this film, was there a particular part of the film that was difficult to be part of or difficult, challenging when you were making it? Um well for us it, i mean it's always it's always difficult when we have to make the decisions not to take this dog or not to take that dog and you can't leave without feeling some guilt about i wish i could have but we know we can't all the time and uh and for us trying to find homes for everything one thing we learned that is very difficult is that when you have four or five that look just alike and they're the same size and people see them, none of them get chosen because they want something different. We've, we've learned during in the process that, uh, I mean, it's not that we won't take several at a time like that, but we've learned that when we take them places to be seen for adoption and for people to sort of go through the group and pick ones they love, we've found that we have to do those individually and separate them. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Because like four beagle puppies that are all adorable, look like four beagle puppies and then put a, a white puppy in there and that's the one they want or a yellow puppy or or something like that and uh then the others sit around forever and it's just man mankind's way of 
selecting. Everybody wants something different and, and unique. So we've learned that we have to, we've had to learn the hard way that we have to keep them apart and let each one go individually. Because, And it's important that they're seen as an individual too and not a pack. So that's been a, a good lesson to learn. You know, when I watch the documentary and I read the book, do you guys ever, ever have an easy day? <laughs> I mean, you you guys, seriously, you bust your ass and it seems like it's nonstop with everything in the house, just the maintenance, but then you are always traveling. And then of course you, you know, you work your regular jobs with the horses and the training. Well, we finally learned after being together about, I don't know how many years, 15, maybe. <laughs> right. Uh, maybe we should take a vacation because we never had. And so we do go to Aruba for two weeks every summer, right before the 4th of July. The first few days, I can actually say are totally, totally relaxing. And we go to the same place every year. And even the staff in the hotel knows us. And uh, we know the ropes in the restaurants and big breeders. And you know, we feel like royalty when we go. After the third or fourth day, then we're on the phone and then we're going to uh, a couple shelters and a couple really hard luck places where people try so hard to do their best. And then we end up taking them shopping and getting supplies for them for the year. Sure. And got puppies. And then Ron is uh, one who, who does get into, he's a manager in every sense um, of life, of, of business, of everything. And uh, so he can't stand not being in touch with everything that's going on at home. So right. he's on it, on the phone constantly after about the fifth day and uh, until I poke him in the ribs. And then he tries hard not to do it in front of me. So sure, <laughs> it, it works. And uh, I mean, that's what makes us work is that that's his thing. And uh, I, I hit departments in other areas, but I know the need for the, for the getaway. And, and finally, we've learned to do that and not feel guilty about it, but we do keep up with what's going on at home. As you talk about Aruba, I got to jump real quick to the book, because you talk about the story about the hotel room and the message light going on. Chloe. Well, that that was actually at a horse show. I guess what I'm connecting is, is like how you're able to go to Aruba and not worry like you did, because it seems like that incident with the phone, when you looked at the phone and you saw it blinking, you knew right away. I had intuition. I, I did. And uh, I don't remember how much of the story went into the book, but um, there was a little bonding there that was with Chloe that was very rare that you ever get that. And I mean, I think most people can speak for their three or four lifetime dogs they've ever had, depending on how many they've ever had, that, that are, are just part of their hearts and you know it heart and soul. And little Chloe was that way for me, even though I only had her a year. But the year previous to that, in the same hotel room and everything else, I got the call that my mom had died. And it was very ironic that we were in the same hotel room the exact same time at night when the red light came on and I got that news. So it, it, there was no way to mistake what was going on. Yeah, I was curious about your intuition because I uh, that part of the book really grabbed me. I wish I could explain it. I, I wish it, none of it had happened. But, um, you know, just sometimes in life you get these feelings that are proved to be true and you just know it and there's no explanation for it. And I, I certainly have, I don't have one. Sure. I just knew <laughs> at the time. 
I'm going to read this while you're doing that. Even before Hurricane Katrina, you both had a love of animals, even as children. And we were talking about the turtles a moment ago. Danny, you said that you negotiate with other kids to save turtles. And Ron talked about guilt putting worms on hooks. As you began to become more focused on your commitment to rescue, have you achieved a certain level of satisfaction on this beautiful mission? Um, I think we've achieved satisfaction in that we're doing the best we can do and still know we can do better. I mean, when we started this, I mean, I don't like to use the word mom and pops or pops and pops, but <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's, uh, um, it was just in our hearts, it was a thoughtful gesture and something that was meaningful and that we wanted to spread awareness of it, but we had no idea how far the awareness could go and how many people we would actually end up reaching. And as it did, I never had uh, a dream or a goal in mind that we were going to grow and we were going to be big or we were going to be better than this or, or whatever. It was we had to stay true to our form. And even when Danielle McCluskey, our, our lawyer in Michigan, volunteered to do this for us pro bono through our lifetime, we were amazed. And we had no idea we, we could be a, a nonprofit or anything along those terms because we didn't have a kennel. We, you know, we had no facility that said dogs here or anything right. like that. Right. And uh, so we, we didn't feel qualified. And, uh, as it, and as it grew and more people became so supportive, there was no way to back down. And, you know, at times it feels like it turned into a monster. You know, you get no peace from or release from other than the fact that you end up feeling the satisfaction that, you know, this has reached someone, this has reached other places, this has reached across the country, it's reached Europe. And it's not just about the numbers of the dogs, but it's about the meaning of dogs' lives and their worth, you know, their worth in the world, which is for a lot of people, that's the best thing they'll ever have is a wonderful dog. This is true. You said that Katrina was the catalyst moment. Katrina was a horrific disaster, but would we have your rescue if it had never happened, if Katrina had never happened? Originally, you guys were going to go down there to help people, but then you saw this issue with these dogs. Well, we, we did a lot for people at the time, but then we realized how much more had already been done for people. And of course, being mm -hmm. horsemen, we thought, well, of course, the horses, but you know, the people were coming right to where we were at the time. So that was our first thought. And then you know, the horses, but then so many of the horse people were already on the target and so much was getting done. And we didn't have a good way to help that other than, you know, give donate financially uh, because people who had lost their horses in that area didn't want them shipped all the way to South Carolina and then right. have to figure out a way to get them back or how to find them. And we didn't, you know, have the place to put a bunch of horses either. So yeah. That didn't really work. And then we just saw in the news some of the catastrophes of dogs fighting for their lives and, you know, and that were left behind. And we couldn't imagine any society at that time in the world, you know, that would rescue people and let, leave dogs to die like that or, or their pets and not allow people to take them. And then when we realized the numbers that involved, then we saw the horrific situations they were in. There was no way not to go. Right. The film is an incredible story about two people that have made a huge difference for the lives of animals, but it is also very much a love story. I mean, the story of you guys meeting two people that have been brought together that have just this incredible, passionate love for animals. 
from back when you guys were children. Your partner says that the guilt keeps him motivated to keep going. He could never stop at this point. I love that. It's very true. It's, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's funny. There's never been a question asked, like, can we do this or will we? I mean, it just takes one glance and we know, yes, we will. And some of it comes in different, you know, in different ways, in different levels. But there's, there's always more to do and more to reach out to. And, and the best part of it right now is, is my niece, Christy. And there's a long story behind Christy. Um, but I mean, but as a child, I was sort of helping raise her as a child, too. And what an animal lover she is. And she heads up the rescue at home while we're down in Florida. Oh, my goodness. She you know has a heart of gold and can't say no to practically anything. So she gets us in more trouble. But well, it's all good stuff. I mean, it's it's rewarding, you know, to think someone else is there with you. And maybe you had an influence there in her early life, too. It sounds like a heart of gold runs in the family. Well, I'm sort of the end of the line. <laughs> <laughs> well, the torch has been passed, apparently, to her. I mean, there are a few left. And it, it runs through all of them that are that are still there. So it's it's a good thing. You're allergic to dogs and horses? I am very much. <laughs> that blew my mind when I saw that I in mean, the. Uh... One time, I was taking so many allergy shots a week and oh. all these drops and pills and all this stuff. And I finally realized that I was also allergic to every southern tree and grass and hay and dust and dirt. And, <laughs> you know, so there was nothing else. I mean, and I just thought, screw this. <laughs> So I, I still take allergy stuff and do what I can, but I'm not getting away from it. There's no way. So sure. I just can't live with it. Is it harder to be in South Carolina or Florida with allergies? <laughs> the worst the worst part of this, and it's the truth, is that we come down to Florida when it's the worst season for allergies. We go home when it's the worst season in South Carolina. Oh my God. So if, if I could reverse the seasons, it might be better. So um, I just try to stay well-equipped and, and prepared as well as I can. Right. Again, I'm going to jump back to the movie. Um, I love Ron's story about the breeder approaching him and saying she hates the rescue that you guys have put her out of business. We love that. <laughs> I know. I know. Isn't that great? That's got to feel really good. Like something felt, felt wonderful. I mean, that was one of the, the first accolades we felt like we received. It. We really <laughs> have there been any other people that have come to you and said, like, look, you know, you're hurting my business or negative comments like that that made you so happy? There have been some others. Most people are a little more tasteful than this lady was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've known her quite a while. Um, and so tastefulness wasn't necessarily her forte, but, uh, but we, I mean, we have had, had people just say, you know, you don't understand that, especially uh, puppy mill breeders that sell to pet stores and situations like that and said, you guys, you know, this is our livelihood. You're trying to kill us. You know, our, our only response could be that you're just trying to kill all the puppies and screw yeah. people with your deals. And it's, uh, there's no way we can support you in that endeavor. Well, and you can talk with experience. You guys have gone into these puppy mills and you've rescued all these dogs yeah, that have been in a lot of places. Yeah. I feel like 52 minutes is probably the most important part of the documentary because it talks about the importance of spay and neuter your pet, a need for a national law, 
And then Ron's story of approaching a South Carolina official who said that there was no way that he was going to tell his buddies to cut the balls off their hunting dogs. How challenging is that to hit such resistance? And here is like somebody involved with making the laws not going to happen, won't even consider it. And that's with a big smile that only Southern gentlemen know how to do. <laughs> like, good old buddy, you know, you just don't get it, do you? Right. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, we get it. And they just, they're not, they're not going to buck each other. They've been raised that way. Their daddy's what did that. Their daddy's daddy and the daddy's daddy's daddy. That's why we have these big old plantations and dogs are a dime a dozen. And if they work, they work. If they don't, we shoot them or we just let them go. And it's not a, a valuable pet to them. It's not someone that could show them devotion through life. They're not given a chance for that. I mean, they're just packed in, packed in sterile areas and they don't get heartworm treatment. They don't do anything unless they prove to be some type of big winner in the, you know, in the deer hunt or whatever it is they're doing. And so, because they just, there's more of them. And to me, it, it's a little bit indicative of, of uh, you know, the old plantations and slavery. It, it's, uh, you know, they're not really seen as individuals. They're seen as products. And when I say that about the South, I, I, I realize slavery actually was, um, there was more slavery, slavery and the biggest slave trade came from Newport, Rhode Island. You know, when everybody talks about the South, so it's not like it was a, it's only a Southern thing where people don't think of other people as people. Right. And uh, so it's, so I'm, please don't think I'm trying to condemn just the South, but there is sort of an old Southern boy mentality that goes with some of that. I and I, and I love the South, but it's very hard to talk to people that, that have no other way to see things. Well, you know, when I was looking for a title for the podcast and I went, I don't know if Kim told you, it's called the Gay Florida Man Podcast. Right. And, you know, you've heard the whole analogy of Florida Man because you hear all these crazy stories come out of Florida. And I don't know if you ever heard this, but you put in your birth date and then type in Florida Man and whatever story comes up, that's your Florida Man. Uh, yeah. When I was thinking about a podcast name, because I, you know, I talk about, I worked 20 years at a state prison and then, you know, of course I'm part of the gay community and then I love horror movies, but I have all these different passions. So there's no one thing that I talk about. I jump around on different topics on the podcast. So right. I thought how perfect the gay Florida man. I think that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's great. I think it's great. So the book forever home, you did this documentary or you were part of it. And it had a lot of unanswered questions. And so now you guys put out this book. Tell me how long this took to, to put together. And I mean, you've got a lot of great stories in this about all these different dogs that were you're really close to. But it seems like you're close to every dog because you never refer to them as just a dog. Everyone has a name. Everyone has a story that you love to tell. Um, they do. Um, and, you know, they, they are individuals and they, and they all need something. You know, since it's grown larger, it's much harder for Ron and I to, you know, to know each one is an individual like we used to uh, when we were mainly the, the main people doing everything. The more staff that it takes and stuff, a little, it takes away some of our own personal closeness with a lot of them. But we try to only have people who are willing to do what we can't do in, the, in, the, in our absence. And, uh, and yet a lot of them we still do have big connections with and a lot of them we make the decisions whether they can be adopted yet or not and if they're you know if they're ready or not and we're the final word 
And but we have people that can tell us what we don't know when we're not there enough to do it. And so like even when we're in Florida and we have a bus come down every week with some of our dogs from home, we know who we're getting and what they're like. And, uh, you know, and it's like if we haven't lived with them, we will before they go anywhere when they leave here. So it's uh, we still try to do our best to know who they are before we represent them. That's that's very well thought out. Some of the the different stories I'm going to jump around in the book just to give some kind of highlights. Skipper, dog from Katrina, where the uh, the family came forward. Yes, uh, that was still one of our favorite memories. He was the cutest little black Pomeranian. You know, at that point, we didn't know how people would find their dogs or or not, and we were told just to go on with whatever we could do because nobody was going to know where their dogs were. They were all in warehouses, and so many people were coming back and. And they, this was very interesting because they were from Louisiana, but they had been evacuated to Houston. And somehow the family in Houston that was had given them a, a garage apartment to live in saw something about us and said, well, why don't you try them? And uh, so we got the phone call and he already had a ticket to Buffalo and, uh, and said, we're sure that's our dog and our children have just cried every day because they don't have him. So we called the people in Buffalo and they were wonderful about it. And we bought him a new ticket. (laughs) (laughs) Does that happen often uh, where you you have dogs that are rescued or brought in and their owners have been looking for them? I mean, is it a common occurrence? Is it super rare? It's pretty super rare at this point. Nowadays, you know, a lot of the dogs that we get and take, a lot of them are from veterinarians where people come in and say they want to put the dog to sleep because they can't afford the treatment it needs or they're just tired of it and, you know, or whatever, if the reason. And so the veterinarians, there's so many that know us and they'll call and say, you know, I, you know, I, we know what your bills are like, but um, this is a wonderful dog. He doesn't deserve to die. You know, would you guys be willing to take it on? How do you say no? <laughs> so, sure. sure. So, so we do, but so, but we also learned very early on that we have to make the people and the veterinarian's office or the shelter, wherever they are, um, if their owners surrender, they have to sign a, an agreement that, that we own the dog after that. that. You know, they can't come back after we've paid for it to be healed and paid all the veterinary expenses and everything else, and then come back and say, well, I want my dog back. Because if it's still in their name, that's what they can do. They have to sign it over to us so we don't ever get into a legal skirmish or a, just a mental skirmish. Because it would kill us to, you know, to send them back to somebody. We had a lady who shut her dog's leg in the car door, and then she wasn't going to pay for the, you know, what kind of operation it's going to be. She didn't have the money for that. Then she called back and said she wanted the dog back after we paid for the surgery and everything else. And, uh, you know, but she'd signed the dog over, so there was no way it was going to happen. Sure. And we've had a lot of that situation. Working in a prison for 20 years, people don't surprise me at all. I'm sure that didn't surprise you at all. <laughs> no, no. Chapter eight, Gloria Gaynor, heavily yes. involved with you guys. Uh, she's wonderful. She's been so good to us. She got heavily involved during the pandemic, right? With the masks and the money that she helped. But it was guys. before that, actually. Oh, okay. Kim Kolob, a very good friend of ours from uh, here in Florida, where she's actually from Massachusetts, but, uh, but she is just a, a busy go-getter loves people and loves children and she said you know all these events down here are geared towards the adults you know this cocktail party for this this fundraiser for that the kids have nothing and she said i want to put on an event for for children 
And she said, but I want them to learn something from it, you know, not just give them an event. And so she came up with the idea of the kids trying to earn money. And she picked us, the rescue, as something for them to, as a goal for them to, knowing they love pets, and it was a goal for them to earn money for the rescue, as well as give them an evening of entertainment and fun. And the idea, of course, was that they didn't have to know how to sing, but they could always lip sync. And so one family that has been very true to us and great to us um, had three daughters. And so they really got on the bandwagon and they wrote Gloria a letter and said, we're planning to perform I Will Survive. Hope that's okay with you. And any chance you want to give us some money to put towards this? (laughs) She asked for some details about it all. They sent her, you know, our pamphlet and this and that. And so then a couple of weeks later, Ron gets the phone call and, and uh, says, hi, this is Gloria Gaynor, and I'm very interested in your rescue. Then she said, well, she would like to come down and be a judge, and she'd love to sing a couple of songs for everyone while she's here. So that's how we met her. Then later she came uh, to our house, you know, to actually see the rescue, uh, the dog house, and came to visit, and we just became closer and closer. And this year she's coming back again for the lip sync. <laughs> and she's flying from California and coming all the way back to Florida just to be here for the night and uh, do a couple numbers and help judge again. What a beautiful lady. She's, is that lovely? Everything <laughs> she's, she's a... And I mean, and that what a great song, too, that oh, the kids originally picked. I will survive. How awesome. Oh, yeah. And I mean, they, you know, they had a motive behind it and it was so true. So it's cool. That's great. So Gadget and the hotel and, and dropping the tennis ball on the elevator with the manager of the hotel. And you <laughs> smuggled this dog into the hotel. I love that story. <laughs> it was a few tense moments. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I imagine you two trying to fumble as the dog wants that tennis ball, trying well, to cover I, up. <laughs> I had to fold. I, I was holding him and then, of course, I dropped the ball. And so then I had to double over him and pretend, oh, oh my stomach again. <laughs> I was trying to squash him and get him confused so he wouldn't think about the ball. And I couldn't wait for the door to open. <laughs> I'll bet. How many flights up were you in that elevator? How long yeah. was that ride? That was about on the fourth, and we were on the seventh. <laughs> wow. That's a great story. In chapter nine, I really like chapter nine because you talk about the importance of gay marriage uh, as far as recognition in the law. Yeah. That was a very, very much needed chapter where people don't understand where they're so quick to judge about gay marriage, but all the legal aspects that, you know, you're just a friend as far as your relationship with, with Ron. Yeah. And they, and, you know, and they, people really looked at, I mean, at hospitals and things, if there's not proof of your being a relative, it doesn't matter who you are. They're not going to listen to a story. They're not going to believe what you tell them. And sometimes the other person who can verify it isn't able to talk at that point and to make any sort of decision. And there was no one I'd rather make decisions for me than him. And, uh, right. Or for for to be there at the same time. And so that made a big difference. And then, you know, the other aspect of that, because, you know, as when we we met, I had my own farm and he had his own place, which is now the doghouse. And now Beaver River Farm, that where we have the show horses and stuff was, you know, totally mine. And uh, because he's a much better business oriented person than I am. And he had the trucks and trailers that shipped the horses and he would deal with billing and, and the help and the salaries and all of that sort of stuff, stuff I had no interest in whatsoever. 
And so, you know, we got to thinking about what a mess that would be if one of us died at that moment, because then he wouldn't have a place for the horses to be trained. If, you know, if my place went up in court or, you know, okay. I mean, my family loves him and his family loved me. And, and uh, you know, so I'm sure it would have worked out all right. But legally, if part of my family just, so I just want the money, my part of the inheritance and put a stop to it, then my farm would have been for sale. And there'd have been no place for him to train. If if he had gone, then I would have nothing to take the horses to the horse shows with, and not a clue how to handle all the rest of the financial things. And uh, it would have been a big court mess in, in every aspect, and ruined a lot of people's lives in the process. So we we figured out, you know, that the the way to do that is to be as a couple and uh, look out for each other. It makes sense. I don't know if you guys are just naturally meticulous or if your attorney helped you with this, but I love the fact that you guys have gotten so specific and so detailed about the adoption contract, looking out for the well-being of the dogs. And, you know, with the stipulation that giving the dog to anyone else comes with a $5,000 fine and you can put a lien on their house. I love that because you're looking out for that dog, not just for the whole adoption process, but for the life of that dog. You really sincerely care about that dog's well-being. That's what we call our lifetime promise. Mm -hmm. uh, They can be referred to frequently. In, In the beginning, I mean, when either I or Ron... You know, we would take dogs from shelters or, or ones we find and get them healthy and stuff and give them away. And later, you know, we'd get a call or something. Somebody, oh, you know, that cute little dog you gave to so-and-so, so somebody else has it now. You know, or and then we'd realize we couldn't, didn't know how to locate some of them and find out how they were doing. And, you know, we'd ask people to send pictures and then we'd get nothing. And, and we realized that we were very irresponsibly thinking we were doing a great thing when we really weren't necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think most of the time it was fine, but it's not fine when it's not fine, you know, and we don't give them a lifetime promise, you know, just for because it's cute wording. It is a lifetime promise. And if it's not going to be done right and it can't be finished as it was intended, then it needs to come back to us. I love that, Danny. Chapter 13 hit close to home for me because you talk about a shelter run by a prison. But unfortunately, they didn't do a very good job. You guys had to come in and save that whole system that was happening. Uh, it was a disaster. <laughs> Horrible. It, it, was, it, was, it was terrible. And, and we actually combined with our local shelter. We had done a lot to help get the new shelter built in town uh, long before we became a rescue. And we raised a lot of money to help get them a new building and a new procedure and and. Um, better conditions for the dogs and cats because the original was really horrible. And so they're the ones that sort of gave us the info about that, but had no idea what to do with it. And uh, so we combined with them to go down there. So some of their staff went with us and we went, or we went with them, however you want to put it, but they didn't really have any way to do anything with it when we got there, but we were all upset about it. But they, at least when we got back, they took a lot of the dogs with them back to their shelter and had them evaluated at their expense, which was a first. Good. And, you know, try to get, you have good community relations with it. But our biggest horror was dealing with the situation at hand that we had just left. One of the dogs went home with one of our staff. I think it's probably told in the in the book, but, uh, you know, they, they slept in these barrels hung from, this, from the roof, these half barrels. 
of the plastic barrels and stuff. And that was their whole doghouse, winter, summer, whatever. The girl that took one of these dogs, it was a hound dog, and uh, she opened her dryer and the dog jumped in shaking and just in the dryer, just thought it was the barrel drum she was supposed to sleep in. Sad. It was really sad. But they had to stay in the barrels because the whole ground was covered in feces and urine and all that. Yeah, I mean, it turns out the barrels were doing them a favor, which you'd never dream of. (laughs) That's so sad. Chapter 14, Lifetime Promise. A vow that the dogs you rescue will never again live in a shelter, never be needy, and never not be loved. That's the words. (laughs) That's fantastic. That's what I've got as far as our interview. You guys are angels. You guys are saints in my book. Well, we hear it. We we think we're struggling dog rescuers, but (laughs) we appreciate the compliments. I wish that every rescue could be as organized, as well thought out, as dedicated as you guys are to the dogs. You guys are seriously amazing. Well, thank you. I mean, it's it's been trial and effort, but we spent a lot of guilt-filled nights, you know, thinking about before we ever made so many mistakes and errors, learning our path, you know, uh, that we didn't have a way to follow up. You know, from our horse world too, it's, it's uh, you know, we learned all these people that donate horses when their kids are tired of them or, or they're not enough winners and they donate them to colleges and, and different places and they don't know what happens to them when they're not useful for the schools. And a lot of those end up in slaughter. And uh, I think now most of the colleges, we've sort of opened a little bit of a storm fire in trying to educate people. You know, when you donate, that's, that's not the worst thing in the world, but know what happens to them. This was an animal that was devoted to your child and, you know, helped you through a lot of trial and error, you know, maybe kept your kid from drugs or something else. And then you just cast it off or you get a tax write-off. And, and uh, But know what happens to it. You know, your child wouldn't want to know what happened to it if it's not good. You know, we, I mean, there's so many unended problems in our world that, that need to have an ending. I had read a story recently that had gotten national attention of a um, a pig that had was they were trying to rescue, but I guess there was some contract. It was here in Florida, and I guess it even made it to the Howard Stern show, and they were trying to save this pig, and the contract was that it had to go to slaughter. And I guess whatever the rules were in place with the state of Florida said, no, we'll, we'll look beyond those rules. It's fine if you want to adopt it. But the person that ran this particular auction for uh, animals said, no, they ended up, you know, sending it to slaughter. She would not let it be adopted. I, I can't believe that level of, um, it just really pisses me off, Danny. It just, no, it does me too. And it, it's, and I mean, I, you know, I think nothing's nicer than the 4-H programs and projects for kids to do. And, but they take such pride in raising these animals and having such bond with them. And then they're sold to go to slaughter. Giving them a name. Yeah, you bond with it. And then it's horrible. I mean, I, you know, I certainly, I mean, I eat meat. I can't deny that. Sure. <laughs> but I, uh, I, you know, hate the aspect of all the factory farming and so many things that should be changed. And I, I rally for that all the time, but absolutely. Um, but I just, I, I don't know for me, I, I don't, maybe I don't have enough real time farmer in me to, to be able to think that I could have something as a pet and then let it go like that. Right. So. That's terrible. There's, I mean, there's still a lot of room for change in our world. Danny, thank you so much for coming on and talking You're to very me. Well. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm going to send a little something uh, to you guys 
how long are you going to be in Florida before you make the the move up to? We'll be here until the, probably the second week of April, probably. Okay. So I'm going to send you guys a little thank you something. So oh, Thank you so much. I appreciate it. One quick question. Do you ever make it to the Equestrian Center in Ocala? I, I've judged there. I haven't shown okay. there. Okay. I, I figure that, you know, you've probably been there. I'm not too far away from, from Ocala. So okay. my whole house is set up with movie props used in horror movies. So I, that's something I don't get into. That's not your thing. I'm not into horror movies. I, I run from them. Do you have a favorite movie? I, I have to go to something that makes me happy. Okay. Like a dog's life. Well, maybe. I have enough dogs in my life. So I don't. <laughs> you have a few. How many do you have in the house right now? Well, in the house down here right this minute, we have 19. We have over 130 in the house at the dog house in Camden. Wow. That's a lot of dogs. That's great. It never, never ends. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Please tell Ron, I hope he feels better. I'm sorry that he's got the flu. Uh, I am too. <laughs> yeah. And be careful, you know, make sure, you know, you don't get it. I wasn't too well the last couple of days, so maybe I gave it to him. I don't know. Oh. Know that it was the flu, but it was a rough couple of days, but it's all good now. Take care of yourself, okay? Thank you very much, Kim. You guys rock. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Good night. And I end today's session with the same thing that I tell you every week, and that is to be good, and if you can't be good, be good at it. And if you're sitting in prison, you're not good at it. Good night, everybody. Mm -hmm.